Hi, I'm Susan Freeman, and a huge welcome back to our Property She podcast series, where we're hearing from some brilliant personalities that I think make a massive difference to real estate and the built environment. Today, I'm very excited to welcome the amazing Dr. Pippa Malmgren. Pippa is an American policy analyst and trend spotter. She advises investors and governments on their macroeconomic policy and their investment strategy. She was an economic advisor at the White House to US President George W. Bush. She's ranked in the top 25 most influential economists in the world and one of the top 10 global experts on geopolitics. And she was also ranked in the top five in the most powerful women in finance list. And that was all in 2017. She co-founded H Robotics, a company that makes commercial use drones, and was recently named one of the top 50 most inspiring women in tech. And hot off the press, she's just been named one of the top 100 women in tech for 2018. Among many roles, Pippa is a non-exec board member of the Department for International Trade advising on Brexit. She's also a best-selling author and will be discussing her latest bestseller, The Leadership Lab, which really shines a spotlight on understanding 21st century leadership. Pippa, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, It's fantastic to have you in the studio. And you're known for having a unique ability to read the mood and spot the signals. You forecast the 2008 financial crisis, the credit crunch, the slowdown in China, Brexit and the rise of nationalism and Donald Trump. So reading the signals, what's ahead for Brexit? Well, interestingly, I get to talk to the biggest investors all over the world. And what they're saying is, whatever the outcome in terms of the specifics, Britain is still one of the strongest economies anywhere in the world. It's leading in artificial intelligence. It's highly competitive. Some Brexit paths might be smoother than others, but at the end of the day, they still find it very difficult to make money on the continent. And so I think that the amount of foreign direct investment coming into the UK will not only still be fine, it will increase uh, as we get more certainty about the Brexit path. And most of the foreign investors have been quite delighted with the outcome. I mean, Britain really is competitive. And I say that as a manufacturer. You know, I have a company I co-founded that makes aerial robotics or commercial drones. So I'm smack in the middle of the manufacturing space that everybody talks about. I don't know why the British always say we're not competitive in manufacturing anymore. The British are very competitive in many areas, creative industries too. So I'm very confident that... Britain is going to be fine. Well, I think the Brits do have a tendency to beat themselves up when yeah. actually there, there isn't the need. So, OK, <laughs> that's encouraging. You manufacture commercial drones. Uh, we're obviously having conversations about a drone superhighways in the sky. And uh, what what are you seeing? How, how quickly is that going to happen? So we think that we're not going to see those highways in the sky. We think the regulators are going to basically... They have real trouble with retail consumers using what are basically toys and flying them quite often totally illegally, like above the 400-foot limit, etc. Frankly, they're not really useful um, except for limited delivery exercises because the batteries are so limited. And usually they're too small to withstand wind or weather or rain. Um, So we could see, you know, maybe organs being delivered from one hospital to another. But the idea that they're going to be dropping Amazon packages in your backyard is just so not happening. And I can tell you, having tested 
like hundreds if not thousands of hours. Children and dogs, when they hear that buzz, they absolutely will not only go toward it, but leap into the air higher than you have ever seen them leap before, and they're all going to end up in the A&E. So we decided to make a a commercial drone system that is designed for corporate use, mainly on corporate commercial properties where you have control over the environment. And we think that's the big growth area. And frankly, that's not about delivery. That's about data gathering. And you can transform how companies interface with the planet, uh, how productive and profitable they are by having that data. Interesting. It's all about data, isn't it? Yeah. So how how are you seeing your drones used primarily at the moment? They they use for surveys. Yeah. And- well, right now um, we we specialized initially in African mining sites. We thought let's start with the most difficult, challenging environments first. I mean, if it's going to break, it's going to be in that kind of situation, and they're used for totally different things. We we made a platform you can attach pretty much any camera, any device, any new sensor to. So it's an open ability for a company to deploy whatever the cool new thing is. So our clients use them for security because people try to steal from mines in the middle of the night. They also use them to manage the toxic runoff so that we don't have as much environmental damage. Uh, We're able to tell them the volume of, of fluids, for example. And we also use them uh, for valuing the mine, because if you have an aerial view of the dirt or the aggregate you've pulled out of the pit, it usually is correlated to whatever the asset is, diamonds or platinum. And you can literally value the mine from an aerial view. So we do all all of these things. That's fascinating. And will we be doing the same thing with Real estate assets, just oh, I think so, most definitely, and I think uh, using aerial robotics to do uh, surveying, uh, monitoring, measurements, um, any kind of assessments. I mean, basically, they're designed to to allow us to stop using human beings in dangerous places. And I'm I'm very confident robotics and automation are all about getting rid of the dirty, dangerous jobs that really aren't smart for humans to do, and vastly increasing your understanding of the assets that you own. So, yeah, I think that's where we're going. Okay, that's, uh, that's really good. Now, I mean, one of the things that we, we talk about a lot is the language gap between the world of the of real estate and the built environment and, and technology. Mm. Is that something that, that you see? Because you bridge, you bridge both. Is, is, is there um, a better understanding now uh, for people who aren't tech as to what tech can achieve and help them improve their companies? Or is there still that language gap? Oh, I think it's more than even a language gap. It's, a, it's an understanding gap. Uh, And I think there's so much technology that could be put to work, but people don't fully understand it yet. I know in in the space I'm in, we're having to teach people about what these aerial robotics can actually be used for. People don't understand the use cases. I'll give you an example. It's not in property per se, but offshore platforms for oil and gas. They currently hang men, it's usually men, off the side of these platforms in the middle of the North Sea to go look at how much rust is is occurring on the side of the platform. And some of these rope works are literally only able to hold a man for nine minutes. In the 10th minute, he is dead, literally, because of what happens to the blood flow while they're hanging in this harness. Why are we putting humans in that kind of danger? Uh, for urban areas, for property, um, 3D imaging so that you can now have a crystal clear down to one millimeter 
3D projection of what is happening in an urban space. And we work in VR as well. So now you can put your VR goggles on. Let's say you're trying to sell a property asset to an investor in Australia. They can put the VR goggles on and viscerally walk through that uh, that building, that neighborhood, and understand what is the true situation on the ground. And we think that's where property is going to go, much more in the augmented reality, virtual reality understanding. It's interesting. And I know one of the things you've you've said is that uh, in order for the UK to remain up there following Brexit, we've really got to be leading in innovation. So compared to what's going on in other parts of the world, how are we doing? Incredibly well. I mean, Britain is the number one in artificial intelligence in the world now. There is a new startup in China uh, called SenseTime, which is now the most valuable artificial intelligence startup. It's worth six billion US dollars last time I looked. And they do facial recognition, but very specifically, they can identify the microfacial movements that indicate when you are lying, when you are talking on, say, CNBC Squawk Box. So I don't know what's going to happen to politics when they bring this in. But uh, that is only one. But frankly, generally speaking, the British are very much at the forefront of AI, but they also are in other areas. Um, Innovation in everything to do with uh, biomedical, huge center here in the UK, the, the triangle between Oxford, Cambridge and King's Cross. There's a reason all of the big uh, Silicon Valley companies like Google are here in the UK, too. So I think Britain is very strong. Add the creative industries and finance as well. By the way, I don't think finance is going to suffer post-Brexit at all because money is a lot like water and it will move to wherever it faces the least resistance. So unless the British are going to raise their taxes and regulatory red tape to be higher than EU levels, which personally I think is such a heavy lift they couldn't do it even if they wanted to, as long as that isn't where we're going, the money will flow this way. I think perhaps we don't shout enough about all the positives. It gets back to this British thing that we yes. tend to dwell on the things that, uh, that aren't so great. And getting back to the facial recognition um, point, I mean, we're all looking at the um, government data collection in uh, in China, and that uh, that's interesting. Yeah. And I think you've made the point that actually in the West, it tends to be the private companies that are collecting all the data. Um, and where is that? You know, where is that going to going to get end up? But with our smart buildings, I mean, do we need to be concerned that our our buildings are collecting data on us that we might not want them to have? Well, let's look at the example of a company like WeWork. Their valuation, which I haven't looked at lately, but it's absolutely massive. Is it because they're so good at leasing office space? No, they're the first ones to say no. It's because we have cameras placed throughout our properties and we gather the data about how humans use the space. And then we sell that data. So when Amazon goes to build their new double headquarters in the U.S. in New York and Crystal City, Virginia, they will buy that data so they know where to put the coffee machine and where to put the sofas and how many desks per person. That information is coming from WeWork's extensive understanding of how humans use that kind of space. And that's where the valuation comes from. Now, when I talk to people who are in WeWork buildings and I say, you realize you're on camera 24-7, they're like, oh, what? I didn't sign up for that. And I'm like, well, you did. And if you look at the fine print, you did. So what's funny is that it's happening and people don't realize that it's happening. And I think that maybe is the problem. The data can be used for incredibly positive ends, but people haven't registered how much data they're emitting and how much is being gathered all the time. 
Yes, I think uh, I think that's that's true. Um, and I wonder if there's going to be a bit of a backlash when people people realise because you made the point about the data that's being collected, how it's going to affect insurance and mm. so health insurance and that sort of thing. So it will be interesting to see how that develops. Well, you know, people say, well, I don't mind as long as I get better quality advertising. So, you know, if I look at a plane trip to uh, the Bahamas, then I'm going to get better, you know, prices on plane trips to the Bahamas. But then I say, yeah, but what about the fact that, for example, banks are already using artificial intelligence and buying independent streams of data, for example, about your credit card spending and your physical whereabouts, because you're even through your clothes now emitting where you are because you have RFID chips, which are literally one third of the size of the dimple of a golf ball in the seams of your clothes. They add it all up, and what they're able to tell is when a divorce is coming in the household. So they know, the bank knows you're going to be divorced before you do. How they figure this out, I don't know, one of the parties is spending money on lingerie at agent provocateur, but not in the size of their spouse, right? This is simple to add up. Anyway, the point is they drag down, they cut the credit limit of the lower earning partner in anticipation of the divorce that they don't yet know about. Now, when you say that to people, they're not so excited about having their data. Is that already happening? That is already happening. Absolutely. Wow. Well, I'm shocked there. Chuck silence. Yes. Um, so we're living in uncertain times, and there is so much change, so much uh, innovation. And uh, your latest book, The Leadership Lab, is absolutely fascinating because you're suggesting that we need a completely different style of leadership for the 21st century and the sort of things um, that uh, have been accepted and we've expected from our our leaders, our business leaders and our government um, leaders no longer wash. So you talked about alpha, zilla, male role, role models and greed is good. And actually, we've moved on now. It's not about the leader. It's more about the team and the ship. So It'll be really interesting to hear from, from you how, how you see uh, leadership changing, how, how people running companies are actually having to change their style to adapt to that. Absolutely. Well, part of it is this new technology-driven world we're in, which has created radical transparency. And so a lot of leaders haven't clocked how visible they are to the world. Um, you know, you look at the scandals that have happened in different categories of leadership, like the emissions scandal in the auto sector. Really? They didn't think anybody would notice about fudging the data? So Chris Lewis, who wrote Too Fast to Think, was my co-author on this book. And here's what we concluded. 20th century leaders were all about top down. I'm going to tell you what to do. It was very much the cult of the iconic leader. You know, Jack Welsh was like the figure and he didn't even have to write on his autobiography, Jack Welsh. He just had Jack, right? Like he's like, it's sort of it's kind of jokingly, it's the Jesus Christ model of the infallible leader. This is not working in the 21st century where everybody's equipped with more computational capability in their mobile device, then we needed to get a man on the moon. So people are questioning leaders saying, are you right? Is that correct? Especially since so many of the decisions have been wrong and ended up in bad outcomes. So one of the things we say is 20th century leaders were also very, not only top down, but analytical. They thought all the answers are in the data. If I just dig deeper into the numbers, I'll get the answer. But 21st century leadership requires parenthetical thinking in addition to analytical. What that means is the ability to look across, connect the dots between previously independent silos, 
it's one thing to measure the math, but you also have to understand the mood. You can say, but I see the facts. Yes, but how do people feel? And this is a whole different way of leading. And as you say, I like this idea that leadership in the 20th century was all about the leader and leadership in the 21st century is all about the ship. What also particularly resonated with me, you say um, for capitalism to succeed, it needs permission. Permission will only be granted when the benefits are shared. And um, just looking at what's going on in real estate development, that does, you know, things are changing. Um, Do you think people have clocked the fact that um, the old ways of capitalism and the old ways of leadership just don't work anymore? Is it taking them time? I think it's taking the generation that's in charge time. And that's why I say, you know, this book is a bit of a knife to the throat of the current generation of leaders to like, you know, open your eyes and see what is going on. Uh, And it's an invitation to the next generation to hurry up and bring all your stuff to the table because we're having some big problems. In property, I was on the uh, judging panel this year for the EG Property Awards. And what was really interesting is what a high priority all of us placed on sustainable development, on community involvement, on consideration for Um, basically the life of the people who would be living or working in these properties. And what we all concluded is the developers are not being creative enough. They're not being imaginative enough. They're still stuck inside their conventional notions of how things are done. And we tried really hard to reward imaginative, unconventional thinking. And I I would like to encourage the entire property market to go further. Because in property now, my gosh, the changes are huge. For example, the fact that we can now build properties where the walls move. So you can change the configuration of interior spaces, where you can build residential property in very tiny spaces, and you literally move the kitchen, depending on whether you're using the living room or the bathroom, because it depends. Do you want a big bathroom? You move the kitchen over, and now you have a huge bathroom space, or you have people over, you have a tiny bathroom space. I mean, it sounds crazy, but this is all totally real. Or farms that are urban in urban buildings, because now you can grow all kinds of produce incredibly cheaply and easily in urban buildings. So why don't we do that? I mean, it makes sense. You know, look at Brexit has raised all these questions about food shortages. Well, why aren't we growing more food right in our urban buildings? It's not hard to do with technology these days, but who thinks of urban farming? And the the people who give permission, the uh, sort of local councils, I don't think they've really got their head around the fact that really we're going to be building buildings where some floors are residential, some farms are urban agriculture, some levels of the same building are going to be uh, office buildings. And this is a whole new way of conceptualizing about what is property and what purpose it serves. Absolutely right. And in fact, I think in that is a clue to what we have to do to uh, regenerate our town centres and, and high streets Completely. because uh, it's it's absolutely that. Um, reimagining it and putting some really interesting uses together, some of which we probably haven't thought of yet. So, uh, Not only that, but I'm really interested in the use of VR and AR to revolutionize um, shopping. And obviously shopping is such a core component of property development. There's an amazing new development being built right now in Las Vegas, or just outside Las Vegas, called Area 15, 
um, and it's going to have in it uh, a company called Meow Wolf, which everybody ought to look at. Meow Wolf is all about highly interactive physical spaces that you walk into that will have augmented reality and virtual reality and literally like illuminated walls. When you touch them, you will change the way the wall looks and feels and at any rate, this is going to be what sh- the the shopping mall of the future is going to feel like. And the placing of virtual objects in public spaces. So if you just hold your phone up, if you're sitting in Sloan Square, you just hold your phone up and suddenly it's populated with all these things being advertised to you. This is a completely different way of understanding where is the consumer and how do we reach them and where do you physically go to shop. And finally, I think this concept of pop-up stores and pop-up restaurants, it's only just begun. We're about to have this on a much bigger scale. I think uh, Ross Bailey and appear here will be very pleased to hear that. Um, so we're going to need more imagination, and I think one of the uh, one of the themes in in your book is um, diversity of thought, whether it's diversity of gender, different backgrounds. That we're not going to be able to come up with these new ideas by just having the same old people sitting around the table. So. How are we going to how are we going to achieve that? Yes, yeah, so diversity of thinking is what Chris and I really emphasize in the book. And I know from experience when I said Trump is going to win, Brexit's going to happen, and I could be in front of a very diverse audience who all said, "Don't be ridiculous." Mm-hmm. So this is the key thing um, to understand when the team of people that you're either working with or surrounding yourself with, if they're all in agreement, we have a problem, especially because of the incredible magnitude of change that's occurring around us. So the first thing is to stop focusing on prediction, like Brexit will or will not happen, or Trump will or will not win. This is a, this is a mugs game anyway. Um, focus instead on preparedness, preparedness for a multitude of scenarios that could potentially play out. And when somebody says, you know, I, I think that maybe Trump could win, instead of shooting that person down, say, let's play with that. Also, imagination is just probably the most underrated requirement of modern commercial life. Um, I love the quote from Mark Twain where he says, the eyes cannot see clearly if the imagination is out of focus. This is exactly right because the, the, the thing that fills the gap between where we are today and where we're going to be is just one thing. It's imagination. So we want to cultivate creativity playfulness, the willingness to consider the absurd, the outrageous. And I think that would better prepare us for the outcomes that we cannot predict, but we must be prepared for. And how far does the gender question actually (laughs) play in this? Because obviously, in real estate, it's something that um, we've talked about a lot. We've had adverse press over the the last year. It's seen as a male-dominated industry. Do you see things changing? So, well, first of all, in the book, we're very careful. We don't just talk about gender diversity, although it's a high priority. We also talk about diversity of uh, income, diversity of life experience, neuroplasticity diversity, where you have people on the team who have higher and lower EQ, emotional intelligence skills. Uh, Some companies now are actively hiring people who are autistic on the spectrum because they're brilliant problem solvers, uh, but in unusual ways. 
So, um, but gender diversity kind of comes at the top because it's, you know, 50% of the population who are currently not present. And I know you talk about property. Well, I talk to audiences across almost every sector of the world economy. And I tell you what I see is a sea of not only middle-aged male faces, uh, but no color either. I, I was actually at an interesting event recently, the We Are Tech Women event here in London. I was very privileged to be um, one of their 100 top women in tech. And I stood up in front of that audience. You know what I saw for the first time in years? Color. And interesting, you bring women into the room, minorities and people of color are suddenly there too. And all of them, they bring something new and different to the table that we should embrace. So, yeah, I think there is a problem. Uh, And, you know, I spoke to a law firm not long ago, and they said, we're very diverse. We hire from five different law schools. And you're like, oh, boy, Hmm. that isn't really going to cut it, right? So this question of what is it to truly be diverse and also what is it to pander to the notion of diversity versus actually achieve it? So I'll give you one little thing we say in the book. If you want more gender diversity, you have to change the way you hold meetings. Most meetings are held on the basis of whoever talks first and loudest wins, right? We all know that. We've been in that situation. But if you say, nope, we're going to do equal time, everybody gets five minutes or seven minutes or whatever, suddenly the quiet voices that have been reluctant to come forward are compelled to. They have to say something. And the blowhards have to shut up. And suddenly you get coming out onto the table a whole bunch of stuff that normally never came forth. So it's not just saying we've got to have more women here. You have to change the structure of how you do things in order to accommodate the quieter voices because the, the, the females, the women who are, who are in the room, typically for a variety of reasons, they're not as confident and they, they don't speak up as freely. I think that I think that's true because women. Uh, I don't. You can't. You can't generalize. Mm. But women will tend not to say something unless they're a hundred percent sure that they that they're right about it. Yes. Uh, so they might think, well, well, perhaps they're not going to say unless unless they're absolutely sure. Um, so that cuts out quite a lot of um, input. Well, this, this is a key point we make in the book. There's a, a marvelous psychologist whose name I always darn well get wrong. Uh, Permusic is his name, who's been teaching at Harvard. And he says what we do is we confuse confidence and competence. And for whatever reason, and it sounds sexist, but the surveys are crystal clear, men will put their hand up with the I know the answer or I am ready for the job when they're somewhere between 40 and 60 percent ready. And women won't put their name up and or put their name forward or allow their name to go forward till they're at 100. And as a result, we say, well, this guy is confident, so he must be competent. No, it's not true. And Females, by the way, interestingly, typically double check their homework. They do their work several times to be sure. Well, if you believe that that confidence equals competence, someone who double checks their work is a psychopath, you don't want to promote. And yet it's absurd. You want to promote the person who is quietly becoming more sure and triple checking. So how interesting. It is interesting. And the awful thing is, I think whether it's a political leader or somebody, a CEO of a company, if somebody says something with enough confidence, people will 
actually believe them. Not only that, but there's research just out uh, from Princeton that when people look at a male face and a masculine male face versus a female feminine face, they automatically attribute more leadership qualities to the masculine male face. They don't even have to open their mouth. That's how in belts the, the bias is. So, Pippa, what are we going to do about all that? <laughs> well, there are lots of cool things happening. There's an amazing woman out in Silicon Valley um, running a company called Blendor, uh, who I met. Um, she is very short, quite petite, African-American, who graduated top of her class, the number one, from MIT and Caltech with a PhD. And she was the only person in her class who was not hired. And you're like, now, how is that possible? And she asked that question, and she concluded that the inbuilt bias against being an African-American and a woman at the same time in the tech space was creating the problem. So she has come up with algorithms that blind the personnel function to the ethnicity and the gender of whoever they're looking at. And guess what? Once they've started using Blendor's uh, algorithms, the hiring of minorities and women has gone dramatically up. So it's just humans. You know, people, we like to hire people who look and sound like us, who we feel comfortable with. So what that ends up being is people all in the same club. But business is not a club. It isn't anymore, and it can't be. And that's another point we make in the book. You know, people have treated boards of directors as a, like a golf club. No, now it's the conscience of the company. You cannot hire people just because they, you know, feel comfortable and they won't challenge you. You want people who are actually going to say, excuse me, but why are we doing this? Why is this on the balance sheet? Why is this our policy? Yeah, so everything everything gets challenged. Mm-hmm. Um but on the sort of male, male, female issue, sometimes women actually don't help other women. I was, I was horrified. I was researching something um, a, a while back, and uh, there was some uh, interesting Israeli research that they couldn't understand why attractive women just weren't getting through the job applications. And they, they found out that the women in the HR departments, when they saw the photograph of a woman who was attractive, they just binned it. So, you know, one's got that to contend with as well. Yeah, well, attractiveness, particularly female attractiveness, is another fascinating subject. The Again, the surveys and studies show that women who are wearing, um, visibly wearing makeup, are immediately considered less competent amazing. And yet, I mean, if I think of myself, I'm speaking on very, very large stages, often to groups of as much as 5,000 people in the biggest auditoriums in the United States. Uh, I have to wear substantially more makeup in order to project under these massive screens that are often entirely encircling the room. Uh, And yet, the, the studies show that that makeup makes people feel that I'm less competent, less leadership material. So what is that? It's basically because it's what you're used to. You know, if you've seen that and associated with a certain thing. So what we have to do is start showing images of women who are in leadership and powerful positions who look like they look, whatever way that is, with or without makeup, whatever that is. And that's why I like this uh, wonderful movement, the the kind of meme going around of, um, I think it's called an engineer looks like this, because there was a young um, woman of color who was applying for some role in engineering and and was saying how she'd built a bunch of things and a bunch of people on the Internet questioned her. They're like, you don't look like an engineer. And so she wrote this wonderful placard saying, this is what an engineer looks like. And 
that has just grown an influence. This is the thing to change your visual bias. Dis and you know, people say to me all the time, "You don't look like an economist." And I take that, by the way, as a very high compliment because you know most of the economists are pretty boring guys in gray suits. But you know what? This is what an economist looks like. That's how we're going to fix this. Yeah, and that's also is how to how to stand out. Um, I was just wondering, has anybody been a huge influence in your life um, who you've looked up to and has sort of been responsible for you going in all the interesting directions that you've gone? Yeah, you know, my dad, my dad, uh, extraordinary man. He worked with seven Nobel Prize winners. He's literally one of the world's leading mathematicians. Uh, he worked on game theory with Tom Schelling and who won the Nobel Prize. Uh, but he also served four presidents. Uh, he was in charge of the missile trajectories during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And then he was the trade negotiator for the United States under Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford. And my dad has always been amazing at helping me stretch beyond whatever my core competency was at the time. So he gave me this life where I have no fear of where the boundary is. And, and the ability to leap across boundaries, you know. So there was a point in my life where I was a trade policy specialist. And then I went into the city and I ended up as the chief currency strategist because I thought, how can you understand trade if you don't understand the money? Then I ended up in the White House as the president's advisor. And fast forward today, I'm manufacturing robotics. And if, you know, people are like, what? How did that happen? And the answer is just this ability to leap across those imaginary boundaries. And and he gave me that. So Pippa, what boundaries are you planning to cross over the next uh, next year? What's happening in uh, 2019? Oh, I have a bunch of them. Um, well, one is that I'm going to be talking a lot more about uh, what I call the holographic economy, which is this ubiquitous gathering of data creates almost imagine a holographic space of data points, an almost three dimensional space that contains almost like a doppelganger of all of us, uh, an image of me that exists in that data cloud that actually is more accurate and precise reflection of who I am than I know myself. And this space, I think we're all going to be operating in and we have to really think about. It's literally like a crystal ball. You can conjure forth answers from it that are much more accurate than by looking at reality directly. And so I'm, I'm very interested in how we leap into this new dimension of reality. And I'm, and I'm looking forward to writing a book, in fact, on that subject. I'm also personally really interested in um, the use of language and Art. I mean, I talk about imagination in the book. How do you spur your own imagination? So I'm spending a lot more time in art galleries, reading novels. People are like, how do you have time to read novels? And I'm like, well, you know, what? I don't have time not to read novels because if I want to inform the way I talk about the world economy, I need better metaphors. I need more elegant language. I need to grip people more. You know, you talked about uncertainty at the beginning of this podcast. And I saw this week someone from the F he wrote a beautiful review of a film and he said, why do we always seek certainty, which is so elusive anyway, when uncertainty is the real seductress, sexy thing that makes our lives interesting? Now, that is about literature and words and emotion. I think you can see why Pippa Malmgren has earned a reputation for being able to read the signals and join the dots. 
And I have to tell you, she's generally spot on. So my recommendation is to continue to follow her very closely as we navigate our way through uncertain times. So that's it for now. I hope you enjoyed it. We certainly did. Please join me for the next Property She interview. In the meantime, make sure you check out our Property She website on mishcon.com slash property she for program notes from all our interviews. The podcasts are also now available to download on your Apple podcast app. That's the purple button on your iPhone or on Spotify. So carry on letting me have your feedback and reviews and most importantly, your suggestions for future guests. Follow me on Twitter at PropertyShe.